Judges 3, 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathiam. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the Lord. Let me open us with another word of prayer. Lamb of God, we come before you as those who have been bought with your blood, as those who know our only life is with you, in you. So may you speak to us because our, our ears are open as much as we can open them. We want to receive from you the very words of life. So please, by your spirit, be present among us though we are not worthy to have you present. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Uh, probably the most frustrating sport I've ever tried to play and try is the key word there, is golf. And I've noticed none of our golfers are here this morning, so I can be real. Uh, if you have never played golf, you will likely live longer and be happier in your life. Um, putting will turn your hair gray, literally. And one of the reasons why golf is such a frustrating sport is that it's, it's, it's a... It's not a, a sport of inches, it's a sport of fraction of a fraction of a fraction of millimeters. Uh, if you're swinging a golf club and you're, the head of your golf club is just, again, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a millimeter off, well, that's the difference between hitting the ball straight down the fairway and slicing it into the woods. Uh, there's no margin of error. Most sports, like soccer, there's all kinds of margin of error, but golf, there's no margin of error. That's so frustrating. Uh, secondly, it's one of the few sports where there does not seem to be a connection between athleticism and skill. And I don't say that to be self-serving because I am not good at golf. But think about it. You, you can play golf while smoking a cigar and drinking a beer, and it does not for affect your performance. You know, can you imagine a guy running a marathon, stopping at like a drink station, being like, anyone got a light? Like, no. Like, the, is it really a sport? But here's the real reason why golf, why golf drives you crazy. It's because every once in a while, you will actually hit the ball well. And everything will come together and work as it's supposed to, and you'll make great contact, and it'll sound great, and it'll feel great, and the ball will go where it's supposed to, as far as it's supposed to, and it feels wonderful. And in that moment, you think to yourself, oh, I could do that again. And it keeps it coming back. And that's how golf gets you. So every now and then, everything works as it's supposed to. Now, we're, we're looking at the first of the judges in this book of Judges. And in this instance with Othniel, we see an instance in which the ministry of the judges works as it's supposed to. Everything comes together 
as it's supposed to. Uh, you have all the parts of the cycle we talked about where the people of Israel turn away from the Lord. They're delivered into a foreign nation, but God raises up a judge, and the judge then delivers the people from their enemies, and there's peace in the land. It's the like paradigmatic example of what this cycle could, should, ought to look like. And, just like my golf swing, it does not happen again throughout the book of Judges. Every instance after this is in some way a deviation from this kind of paradigm. Whether it's, you know, parts of the, parts of the cycle aren't there, or it's only part of Israel that's delivered, or it's the judges that begin to decline. Until you get to the final judge, who's Samson, who's somewhat of a narcissistic, just riddle of contradictions. But here we see this is what the ministry of the judges could and should and, and ought to have looked like. And so we're going to see theological truths in this paradigmatic example that kind of give us, that help us interpret the rest of the book of Judges. So a roadmap for where we'll be this morning. First point is that Israel forgets. Second point is the Lord bruises. And the third point is the Lord alone delivers. So first point, Israel forgets. Let me read again verse 7 for us. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So there's a problem that confronts us in this story. And the problem is that Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that means that they serve other gods. They turn away from Yahweh and they begin to serve some of the Canaanite gods, mainly Baal and Asheroth. And this is a common refrain throughout Judges. It's six or seven times repeated. Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and it's interesting how it phrases that. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's important. Because what they did would not have been evil in the eyes of Canaan. Uh, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Canaanite religion was very inclusive, very open and affirming. It had many gods who covered many different areas of life, and they didn't compete with each other. No god demanded all their allegiance. And so for Canaanites, like, well, the more gods, the merrier. And so here comes Israel, and you got this powerful Yahweh God who defeated Pharaoh of Egypt. Sure, bring him in. Amen. The problem was, though, is that God had told Israel that is evil. It may not have looked evil to the culture they were living in, but it was evil in God's eyes. And in the end of the day, that's the final arbiter of what's good and what's evil. And this is just a helpful reminder for us. The human conscience is broken. Sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it doesn't. And so we want to be really careful about trusting our gut intuitions because there are times when what God says is evil, our culture says is good, or vice versa. What God says is good, our culture says is evil. So we just want to be really careful about trusting our gut intuitions. And this is why God has given us, again, a word that is a definitive revelation of who he is, of what is good, what is evil, and so we're always conforming our gut intuitions in, 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 in what God has given us in his word. But first problem, Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And second, they forgot the Lord. Now those two problems, I think, are causally related. Which means this, Israel forgot the Lord their God. And therefore, they did what was evil. First comes forgetting. And because they forgot, that's why they then did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so it's helpful to camp out for a second on what does it mean that they forgot the Lord, because that's where it starts. All the deviations that we see in Judges and all the, the evil that Israel gets into and the brokenness and dysfunction and corruption, it all begins with 
Well, they forgot the Lord. And so I want to just take a moment and unpack what this means. Because in Judges, it only says it once that they forgot the Lord. It isn't, it's not a common phrase in Judges. But again, this is a paradigmatic, this is, a, a, this is showing us the kind of paradigm in which to interpret all the other Judges cycles. And so it says it here. We can interpret it each and every time. It may not say Israel forgot the Lord, but we can insert that. But in the rest of the Old Testament, it's all over the place, that phrase, Israel forgot the Lord. It's a common description of how Israel turns away from the Lord. So for instance, Hosea 13.6 is actually describing when Israel arrived in the promised land, and it says this. So it's describing what we're reading, but it's many, many years later when it it was written. But when they had graves, it's talking about Israel, they became full and they were filled and their heart was lifted up and therefore they forgot me. Israel came into the promised land uh, and they grew prosperous and powerful and content. They no longer needed God to provide them manna every morning and to provide them water to drink and quail and all this stuff. And so as they became strong, they forgot the Lord. So what does it mean to forget the Lord? It doesn't mean that we forget information about God. What it means is that our knowledge of God stops affecting us. That's what it means. Our knowledge of God no longer has an urgency to it. In other words, God becomes less real to us. We may know things about God, but what we know about God is not as real to us anymore. And as God became less real to Israel, at the same time, the gods of Canaan, Baal and Asherah, became more real. Now, I mentioned before, again, if you walk down Bartstown Road, you will not see golden statues lining the road with people bowing down to them. We don't have idolatry in that way in our culture. But we still very much have idolatry. The idols, though, are not out there. They're in our hearts. And the idol is anything that we end up wanting more than God himself. Something that we love more or desire more than God himself. And if anything, idols of the heart are far more dangerous because they're far more subtle. Because oftentimes... An idol is a good thing that we just want too much and we make it into something that's ultimate and it becomes an idol. So we talked about careers, right? Doing well in your career is a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol when it's what we want more than anything is to achieve some career success. Romantic love is a good thing, but when we think I cannot live, my life's not worth living unless I have romantic love, well, that's become an idol. You can think of self-expression or being true to yourself. All these things are, can be good things, but when they become ultimate things, they become idols. Now, here's the thing. Most, like, right, if you've been to Sunday school once, you know that God is more important than a career. Uh, you know what God thinks of you is more important than what your friends think of you. You know that to be true. But if we're honest with ourselves, the reason why idols can be so compelling is that they seem more real. Here Israel is worshiping a God they cannot see. And their neighbors have gods that they can see, that they can touch and feel and smell. They seem more real. Right? Like, you know God, the create guys, the creator of the universe, who created everything with his, 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 his breath. He's looked on you and said, I love you. But yet, the opinion of our neighbors and our friends seems so much more real 
And so we spend all our time worrying about what they think of us. And in that moment, we have forgotten the Lord. These false idols have become more real. Or we, we know that there's peace and rest in the presence of Jesus. And yet, the very temporary peace and rest that we can find when we indulge in social media or TV or food or alcohol, it can feel so much more effective. And so we cope with our busy and stressful lives by turning to these things. And in that moment, we have forgotten the Lord. He is less real to us. And this is what Israel does again and again and again in Judges. This is what starts that cycle of oppression and deliverance. As Israel forgets the Lord, the God just becomes less real to them. Now before we move on to our second point, which is God bruises, I want to ask, what's the opposite of forgetting? What's the antidote for forgetting? It's remembering, exactly. And you're like, thank you, Captain Obvious. I didn't need you to tell me that. But here's the thing is it's so, I mean, how do we not forget the Lord? Well, we remember him. And it's so simple that we overlook it. And then we find ourselves forgetting the Lord. We remember the Lord by engaging in the regular, long-term aspects of discipleship that we see in Scripture that have been handed down to us through the ages by our forefathers in the faith. We remember the Lord by engaging in what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. And this is what spiritual disciplines are. They're just, they're just trying to make the knowledge of God real to us. Like, why do we fast? Well, I, I know, I can read in the Psalms that like, you know, my soul pants for the Lord as a deer pants for water. I know my soul is desperately in need of God, but, but you know what? My, my hunger for food feels a lot more real. And so we fast and, and, and we, we stop eating food so that as we feel that hunger pain, we can use that pain to remind ourselves, this is uncomfortable, but my soul is so much worse off without God himself. I need the presence of the living God so much more than even my body is craving this food. And we remember the Lord. Why do we spend time in prayer and solitude and other spiritual discipline? Because our lives are so hectic and there's so many voices and we, just, we need time to just stop and untangle our knotted up hearts and hear the voice of God again. Remember the Lord. We remember God by reading the Bible, not just for breadth, but for depth. Um, my experience in evangelicalism is, is we value reading the Bible, but it's usually for breadth, for, for large swaths. So, so a, Bible pre, a Bible reading plan is almost always getting you through the Bible at least once in a year. And so it's here are five to 10 chapters to read every day. And that can turn this discipline into, well, just read these chapters and you're good. And that is good. Like, we need to read the Bible for breadth, but we also need to read it for depth, where we just camp out on, on, on a couple verses and we're meditating on it and praying on it and, 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 and just immersing ourselves into it. And that's how what we know about God becomes, begins to be real and to kind of percolate down into our hearts. Lastly, we remember God by walking out our discipleship of Jesus Christ in community with his church. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings and we worship God. There's something that affirms our faith when I hear my brother and sister sing the same truths next to me. When I hear us confess these truths that Christians have confessed for literally 2,000 years, there's something that makes this real to me. But it's not just Sunday morning formal gatherings. We also gather informally for small groups, 
You know, it's interesting. When I, uh, I used to think small groups were like a 90s thing. Like, oh, well, the advent of the megachurch, you had to have small groups because no one would know each other. Then I came to Vine Street, and I found out from uh, Joe that Vine Street had small groups in the 70s. And I was like, wow, Vine Street's cutting edge. And then I began to read history, and, and I realized almost always throughout the history of the church when there are renewals, people just begin to gather in small groups to read the Bible and pray together. Not because there's like a small groups pastor organizing them, but it just, it's just a natural overflow of a heart that wants to know God. So, by the way, if you're not part of a small group at our church, um, we're taking a break for the month of July. But I really encourage you to get involved in one when we start back up in August because it's one of the ways that we remember the Lord together. But Israel forgot the Lord. The Lord's saving acts, his presence, his truth, his goodness, it just became less real to them. And as that happened, they turned to cheap substitutes, which was Baal and Asherah. And this brings us to our second point. The Lord bruises. So first, Israel forgets. Second, the Lord bruises. Let me read verse 8 for us again. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Israel turns away. And it says that the Lord's anger is kindled against them. And this may make us uncomfortable. There may be a tension there. How might God is compassionate and gracious, and yet here his anger is kindled. It's a very visceral description of God's anger. How, how does this work out? And I think there's two questions in that concern. I think one is a genuine intellectual question of how does God's anger and his love coexist? Oftentimes, though, with that question is a little bit of a self-serving question that may not be as explicit, and it's the fact that it would be a lot more comfortable for us if God was a lot more indulgent and just let us live how we wanted. In, in one sense, that would be a lot more comfortable because there would never be conviction of sin. If God just said, you live, you be you, and blessed it. It would be more comfortable, but in the long run, brothers and sisters, it would, it would be much less comforting. And this is why. God grows angry with his people because he loves his people. And if we miss that, we misunderstand God's wrath, especially how he disciplines his own. He grows angry with Israel because he deeply and passionately and steadfastly loves them. And the logic of how anger and love go together is obvious from two of the most common metaphors used of God in the Bible, which is God is our parent, our father, and he is our spouse. God is our heavenly father. Many kids when they're little wish that their parents didn't have rules for them and didn't discipline them. Like in one sense, it'd be great. Like, man, if my dad and mom just let me stay up till whenever I wanted and do whatever I want and never punish me, that'd be so wonderful. But in reality, when parents do that, it's traumatizing for kids. That's, what's, that's what you call neglect. A parent cannot love their kid and be indifferent to how they live and what they're doing and how they're spending their time. And so a good parent disciplines their children because they love them. And if they didn't discipline them, it would only be a sign that they were indifferent. And so God disciplines his children. He disciplines his people. He grows angry even with his people because he loves us. 
Secondly, God is our spouse. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom and we all are his bride. In the Old Testament, there's marital language left, right, and center, and, and, and marriages are exclusive. Like I'll, you, know, you, can, you can borrow my clothes. You can borrow my phone if you wanted to. You, you can't borrow my wife. It's just not. And if a spouse cheated on another spouse, and that other spouse agree, it wouldn't be a sign that they loved their spouse more. It would be a sign that they didn't really love their spouse in the first place. And so God grows angry because he loves us. And here's the thing. Because God grows angry because he loves us, and this is so important, what that means is that for God's people, God's anger is always redemptive. It's always intended to bring us healing and for our good. Now, God's anger, period, is not always redemptive. You know, God's final judgment in hell, which is the ultimate expression of his hatred towards sin, is not redemptive, it's just retributive. It's, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and it's good and it's right. But God's anger towards his people comes from his love for them, and therefore it is always redemptive. And here's where I get to my second point. This is what I was coming to, that sometimes God and his redemptive anger towards his people has to bruise us in order to lead us to repentance. And I'm seeing this phrase bruising from this beautiful passage in Isaiah that describes Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of our Lord in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 42, 3 describes Jesus as being a kind of person that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And the image there of a bruised reed, when I was a kid and we'd go hiking, I liked to hike with a piece of, like I'd get a long piece of grass and I'd put it in my mouth. It made me feel like Tom Sawyer. But if that piece of grass like bent, if it bruised, well, then it would kind of like hang down. It wasn't good for anything. And, and it'd easily break after it, was bruised, after it was bruised. And so the image in Isaiah 42 is that Jesus is going to be such a gentle Lord that a, a, a bruised reed that's about to fall apart into two pieces he won't break. He'll be that gentle with the poor in spirit and the brokenhearted. But what Judges is getting at is that sometimes in order to receive that healing ministry of our Lord, we have to be a little bit more bruised. Sometimes we feel a little bit too strong to accept the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus came and he said, I came for the sick and the lost. And unless we know we're sick and lost, we're never going to be able to receive the redemptive ministry of our Lord. And so sometimes, God in his mercy bruises us. He puts us in difficult circumstances. He brings suffering into our lives. He, he puts us in a hard place. And it's not because he does not love us, but sometimes we need to be bruised. And this is what God does to Israel. Again, it says he sells Israel into this pagan king. He sold them into the hand of Cush and Rishathaim for eight years. Again, as Hosea had shown, Israel had grown strong and content. And for them to be able to return to the Lord, to see their need of the Lord, this is what God had to do. I mean, God knew. Again, when he, sell, when he sells Israel to Rishathaim, he's not just being petty and like, oh, I'm sick of you. I mean, he knew this is what it's going to take for Israel to see their need of me and come back to the one who is their only life. And so that's what he does. 
Now, the book of Job is given to us so that we never assume God works in some kind of formulaic way. As if every time you experience suffering, it's because there's some particular sin you need to repent of. That's not what I'm saying. Job was righteous, and yet he went through all kinds of sufferings. And yet, even still, as God bruised Job, the end of the book of Job, Job learned things about God he could not have learned otherwise. So my question for you is, like, what are the hardships in your life right now? I mean, all of us, some of us may be going through some very difficult hardships. Some of us just ordinary hardship. But do you understand this? Maybe God bruising you in his kindness so that you can see your, the depth of your need for him. If anyone other than God did this, it would be awful. But God alone is the only place where our souls find rest and peace and life. He does this so that we can experience a deeper intimacy with him than we ever could. So Israel forgets the Lord, and so the Lord bruises them. He sells them into slavery to this foreign king. But we come to our third point, which is absolutely crucial or will be very one-sided in this truth, and that's that the Lord alone delivers. Let me read again for us verses 9 to 11. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It's interesting, after verse 7, God is the actor in this story. So verse 7, Israel's the actor, they turn away from the Lord. And then from 8 to 11, yeah, we see Othniel, we see this Kushan Rishathaim, but the actor is God, he's doing everything. And there's a purpose for that. Throughout the whole book of Judges, we see men and women of various calibers of character and, and, and goodness, and, and, and they're the ones delivering Israel. But the whole point of Judges is that it is God alone who delivers and so again, in this paradigmatic example, which is giving us kind of a theological understanding of the rest of the book of Judges, makes it really, really clear. There's all these details that are not included in this story that are often included. So for instance, who was Cushan Rishathaim? Doesn't say. He's just a Mesopotamian king. How does Othniel deliver Israel? I mean, you think of all the other judges, it gives all these details about military strategy or lack of strategy. It just says, uh, doesn't give us any of that. And the, the point is, it wants us to know beyond a shadow of doubt, this is God who is delivering. God alone is able to deliver, deliver Israel. And, we, and, we, and it's very explicit in all kinds of ways. Verse 9, it says, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Othniel, him being available and present, it's not some happy coincidence. Like, oh, Israel was in need, and how fortunate that Othniel, this man who was already a trained warrior, we've heard, I mean, he was part of the conquest, a godly man, like, oh, great, they're so fortunate that he was there. No, God had been preparing Othniel from the day he was born, before he was born. God raised up the deliverer. God is the actor. In verse 10, it says this, you know, why was Othniel effective? It says the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Othniel had success because God's spirit anointed him and empowered him in a special way. 
And then finally, in case we're just like, you know, making it as obvious as possible, again in verse 10, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into his hand. That's why we don't hear about Othniel's military strategy. It doesn't matter what his strategy was. That's so secondary. What matters is that God was the one delivering his people. And it's interesting. This one's a little bit more speculative. But it seems that Rishathaim may have been the greatest danger that Israel faced in all of Judges. It says he was the king of Mesopotamia. That would have been probably modern-day Iran. And so a similar place where, like, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire grew. In other words, it's, it's, it's not close to Israel. It's, it's quite a march. And so here's a king whose power is so great that he is extending it into Israel, which means this is really an emperor who rules kind of an international level power. Every other foreign oppressor that Israel faces and judges are just like local warlords and chieftains or recent migrants, the Philistines, refugees, basically. But here we have someone who might have been on the same kind of power level as like Assyria or Babylon, and yet God delivers them by the hand of Othniel. Again, who saved Israel? It's not Othniel. Othniel was the ideal deliverer, yes. He's the only deliverer who there's absolutely nothing flawed or unexpected about him. He's exactly who you'd think would deliver Israel, but yet the emphasis here is that it's God. It's Yahweh who alone saves, who alone can deliver Israel. Now, I have two final kind of applications off this last point that the Lord alone delivers, and this is the first one. The Lord bruises because he will deliver. In other words, yes, the Lord at times brings us low, but he does it because he will raise us back up. He will restore our joy again. Again, when we find ourselves walking through difficult seasons, and the Lord, for whatever reason, is humbling us, God does that because his intention is to raise you back up. To reveal part of himself to you. To restore your joy and your hope and your peace in him. He brings us low so that he might raise us back up. That's, his, that's always his plan. And we see this in 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a church undergoing suffering. Suffering that's because they're faithful to Christ, not because they're sinning. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7? He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God humbles us so that he might raise us back up. He takes away what we find precious. He afflicts us so that he may restore the joy that is life-giving, so that he can draw us deeper into himself. We don't know when that proper time will be. He says, at the proper time, he will exalt you. But that's why, yeah, God bruises us sometimes. But he does it so that he can deliver us, so that he can bring us back to him. The bruising never lasts forever, in other words. That's what the psalmist says, right? Weeping may last for the night, yes. But joy will come with the morning. So that's, that's the first application. The Lord bruises because he will deliver. But second is the Lord bruises because he alone can deliver. And I think this is part of the like, weight of what is, is, is happening in Judges is the fact that your heart is a battleground. 
It is a battleground, a war, warring cacophony of competing voices and powers and principalities that are trying to seduce you with promises of happiness and prosperity and comfort and pleasure. And they're lying to you. They're lying to you. Every God but the true God is a sham. A charlatan who's trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. So brothers and sisters, sometimes God bruises us so that we can see how inadequate our idols are. God sold Israel to Cushan Rishathaim for eight years because that's how long it took for Israel to then turn back to the Lord and begin to see, oh, these Baals and, and Asherah, they're not doing what we thought they would, and they turn back to the Lord. Last fall, I went to a, a marriage retreat. Uh, Marco found it first, and she sent me an email. I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And I'll be honest, at first glance, I was like, I don't know if this is my cup of tea. And then I looked into it, and I realized one of the main speakers uh, was the former lead singer of the Christian band Sanctus Real, who I was really into in high school. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, I want to go. And, and I'm glad we went, because it, it was really good. Um, but this, this uh, uh, and, I, and I'll, you know, uh, uh, I didn't embarrass myself. I didn't fanboy. I just admired him from afar. But um, he told a story that, that is so, I think, relevant to, the, to what we're looking at this morning. And it's, um, it's a story about basically their first album that really got big. It, had, it was their most commercially successful album. They had a song that hit the number one chart on Christian radio. It's like when they made it big. But he said what most people don't realize is that at the same time that his album was exploding in sales, uh, his wife was giving birth to one of their sons, and his son was born with a pretty severe heart defect. Um, and there was a couple weeks where his son was in the NICU, and they, they didn't know whether he was going to live or die. And so while he's going through this crisis in his family, he's, again, he's hitting the number one, number one place on Christian radio, and he, and he described this one moment where he's, you know, standing outside the NICU looking through the window at his son. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die, and the whole time his phone is just blowing up, dinging, 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 dinging friends and acquaintances and family, like, texting him, congratulations. Did you see, like, your song's number one. And, it's, and he realized, like, this is what he had been yearning for. This, this was the goal. This is why they started the band, to, to finally make it as a musician, to achieve, you know, success and to be affirmed. And... But as he looked at his... The son, he didn't know if the son was going to live or die. He realized all that was worthless. All that that he yearned for just became dust in his mouth. Sometimes God has to bruise us for us to be able to see the idols we cling to, to see them for what they are. Israel would never have realized the falseness of Baal and Asherah if God had not sold them into a foreign king and allowed them to suffer for eight years. They would never have realized how inadequate an idol is to bear the weight of a human soul. Sometimes the Lord bruises us 
because it's the only way we can really learn and know in the depths of our hearts that the Lord alone saves, that with him alone is true joy, true peace, true hope. And so that's what the Lord does. The Lord bruised Israel so they could have real peace. And that's how it ends. I mean, so the land had rest for 40 years. So this is the cycle that we're going to see again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. Israel forgets. They're afflicted by a foreign nation. God gives them over to serve another nation. And then God raises up a deliverer because God alone saves because he is the God of his people. He delivers them and then they have rest. But there's one last thing before we finish. And I want to point out that it actually doesn't end with the land having rest. It ends with Othniel dying, this judge. Right? Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Again, Othniel is the only judge, arguably, who is completely flawless. He, this, is the, this is as good as the, the ministry of the judges could possibly get. This is what it could look like if it always went according to plan. And so what this is doing is highlighting like the best of the judges were still so inadequate Why? Because all that they gained was temporary and quickly lost. I mean, look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Othniel dies, and then Israel wanders. And that's the best of the judges. So inadequate. And part of what the book of Judges is laying groundwork for is showing us why Israel needed a king. And so when God raised up kings, there was some advantages to that that brought some political stability and economic stability and military stability. But the kings, the best of the kings, had the same problem. They would one day die. And based on who their son or sons were, they could lose everything. What judges and the whole Old Testament is pointing us towards is that we need a deliverer who can deliver us beyond the limit of death who can deliver us from death itself. Every other deliverer is always going to be inadequate because even the best human leader is going to die. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who like you and me was human, which means he can lead us. He can know us. He knows, he's experienced life and its beauty and its glory hearts, but yet he was fully God, and what that meant is that when he died, death could not hold him. And that means that of all the great leaders throughout history, he's the only one who rose again to never die again. And so because of that, he can deliver you to the uttermost. He can save you completely. Because Jesus rose again to never die again we can also know that he will ensure that no suffering we experience will be for nothing. And he is the one who is so gentle to the brokenhearted and the poor in spirit that he wouldn't crush a bruised reed. That is who our Lord is. Because of that, we can trust him with everything we have. Everything. Let's pray. Jesus, may we know you.
more and more. May our hearts be drawn to you. May we see in comparison to you every idol, everything we might look to for meaning and purpose and happiness. It's just dust in our mouth. But in you, there is life unending. Lord, we confess we often know that in our heads, but our hearts are far away. Please remind us again and again of your mercies and your grace that they are new every morning. And Lord, if you must bruise us, be gentle. And we know that you know our frame, that we are dust. In your holy name we pray, amen.